Okay, now that Sarah's walked out of the room, we can we can start. Because that's important. Alright. We're sort of in the age of enlightenment. If, if you remember from last week, technically people start the age of enlightenment, uh, which is an age where they're, where they're tied into the age of reason, where they're, where they're talking about this explosion of science and rational thought and all that kind of stuff. Technically, they like to, to put this after the Thirty Years' War, um, but there's a lot of good stuff that happened at the beginning of the 17th century. So we're, we're, we're calling it like this proto-enlightenment, the enlightenment before the enlightenment. So we're cheating. Anyway, but I ended last week by saying, uh, talking about the fact that uh, in 1611, you know, the King James Bible being published. So that means we have to start this week with King James Bible being published. Now I'm doubly sad that she's out of the room because this is all for Sarah. Um, so, if you remember, if you remember, there you go, now Sarah's back in the room. King James from last week, you remember King James, the Scottish king of the United Kingdom. We got uh, Scotland, England, Wales, and uh, an Ireland finally all together in one big old clump. Now, last week we talked about that he had this Hampton Court Conference in 1604 where he was talking to and listening to the Puritans. Because um, the Puritans were a group that wanted to, to purify the Church of England, uh, get rid of all the stuff that they that they shouldn't be there, that maybe they've carried over from Catholicism, what have you. Do you remember why he was actually willing to listen to these guys? <coughs> he knew somebody that was into Puritanism. Okay. Francis Bacon. Do you remember Francis uh, of the Bacon twins who were not related, who both did the scientific method, yeah. So Francis Bacon was inclined toward Puritanism. He, he wasn't necessarily a Puritan, but he he, he was uh, very sympathetic to their cause. And so he's like, yeah, okay, I'll listen to you guys. One of the issues that came up this conference was the need for a new English Bible. Um, they'd had what they called the Bishop's Bible, which was this big old clunky thing. I mean, it's just stinking huge. Uh, they they, they only printed off a few copies of it. It was extremely, exorbitantly expensive to print. And so only bishops had it, which is why they referred to it as the Bishop's Bible. But it was this big flowery thing. It wasn't the best, uh, uh, most accurate translation of the time, but that was one thing that they had. But the two most famous ones, if you'll remember, one was the 1526 <laughs> translation by William Tyndale, right? Remember this one? Um, that purposely uh, coined a bunch of new terms like atonement and, and, and that sort of thing where he was trying to express things in everyday speech so that everybody could understand it. He, uh, instead of just translating both uh, episcopos and, and, pres uh, and presbyteros as bishop, he said, no, no, the first one would be a bishop, the second one would just be an elder. And, and consciously trying to get back to what was the original Greek and things so that people would understand, the everyday person reading would understand. And he was transferring it from the Greek. Yes. Yeah. And he was better at Greek than he was at Hebrew. Never, if I remember correctly, never really did quite finish doing the, the Old Testament. Um, and then there was the 1560 Geneva Bible. Remember our buddy John Knox and William Whittington, or Whittingham did the, the Geneva Bible, and this is the one that had the study notes chapter headings, all that kind of stuff, so everybody has any kind of study Bible, looks back at the Geneva Bible and goes, yay, thank you, I love you. So, those two. But, they had a problem, they're like, Tyndale's Old Testament was incomplete, um, and they really didn't like that he consciously tried to take jabs at church hierarchies, like the whole Presbyteros as elder instead of bishop thing. He consciously said, well, wait a minute, this isn't capital C church I, as in hierarchy. Oh, stop this. I will say no. Uh, just say no. Oh, yikes. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, uh, what was I saying now? Oh, I get it. So, uh, or, or like he was saying, it wasn't saying capital C church, like in church hierarchies, it's talking about congregations. So let's, let's when I run into, uh, when I run into this word, let's look at this ecclesia, this called out congregation, let's call it the congregation of the saints, instead of just the church, which people would read and go, oh, like, Catholic see Church in Rome or things like that. So they didn't like that, uh, that that Tyndale was consciously trying to pull down church hierarchies, consciously trying to make Christianity um, a, a grassroots thing, uh, a personal thing. It's like, no, got to fix that. 
of people were upset because in the Geneva Bible, they didn't like some of the marginal notes. Like, some of these things I don't like. Um, there are these Hebrew midwives that were doing their own thing in Exodus, and that's being held up as if it were a good thing. No, no, no. You don't tell the common person that they get to choose what they do. Um, king Asa gets chastised in Second Chronicles. You don't chastise a king. You don't say anything bad about kings. In fact, if you can tone that down a little bit, if you can make that a little bit nicer toward kings, that's what you need to do. Um, so King James is an official said, all right, no anti-royal statements here. I want you to retranslate this so that it is not as anti-royal. Yeah, I know. Keep that stuff. No marginal notes. I don't want to hear you. I want to get to the Bible. I, mean, I can respect that. But um, they also specified that the new translation has to actively conform to the theology and polity of the Church of England. Nothing in this translation is going to go against the way we do things in the Church of England. So make sure that your translation supports that. Um, make sure that you translate it in such a way that you talk about clergy being ordained. They have to be ordained. So make sure that you pull those kind of things up, even if you have to tweak the translation a little bit to do it. Uh, make sure that you don't talk about congregations, you talk about the church. Everything, make sure you put it in its hierarchical sense. Not huge, horrible things, but just you want a specific edge to your translation. So they have 47 translators. Just go back to the Greek and Hebrew. We want you to pull from the Greek and Hebrew, but we want you to start with the Bishop's Bible. Take the Bishop's Bible as your base, and then tweak its translation with Greek and Hebrew as you go. But since the Bishop's Bible is already something we're using, that's what we want you to start with. Just kind of like uh, you've heard about the new Revised Standard, or the new American Standard, or the new King James, or even the, uh, the New Living Bible. Those all started with existing English Bibles and tweaked them. Now, arguably, they all tweaked them to be closer to the, the, the Greek and Hebrew. They tweaked them in good ways. But they didn't just go back to the Greek and Hebrew, start there, and build. They started with something else. Does that make it bad? No, not necessarily. It just it gives you a base to start from. With the New Living, I, I, I say, yippee! Because the Living Bible was just a paraphrase in the first place. The New Living Bible says, can we actually turn this into a translation? <laughs> the New Living Bible isn't very bad. The Living Bible... Um, but what are the pros and cons of doing it that way? What are the pros of going back to an existing English translation? Well, some of the work's already been done for you. Yeah, love the heavy lifting. Well, I think, it, in fact, there's bias built into that, and they're trying to. But what is, let's go back to prose, though. Oh, what I mean, by using one that's existing, you, you avoid some biases in your translation? No, I see that as a fault. Okay. But you could look at it both ways. Yeah, you may very well say, I always translated this word this way, but looking at the English Bible, I'm like, oh, actually, I can see why they did that. Like, um, um, on Friday night, there was a, a, a word at the beginning of um, Psalm 43 that some Bibles translated judge, and some Bibles translated vindicate. Judge me, O Lord, or vindicate me, O Lord. You know, which is it? Because those sound like exact opposites. And I went back to the Hebrew, and I'm like, actually, the, the word there is shafat is to exercise judgment about, which means if I am at fault, judge me and find me at fault. If I'm not at fault, and by the way, David's going, I'm pretty sure I'm not, then vindicate me. You know, exercise your judgment. And so uh, I think it was the King James that judge, and like the NAS and NIV both said vindicate. And you can see why they went with vindicate, because contextually that's what he's talking about. But the word is actually judge. So it's kind of helpful that you don't just say, what do I think this Hebrew word means? But you look at other English translations and say, oh, I, I see where they're going with this. I see it. There's pros and cons to this. Um, oh, yeah, this is a picture of the, uh, of, of the uh, Bishop's Bible. And you'll see on the cover, yeah, holy, it's like the, the Holy Bible. Yeah. Um, the, this, and this eye has a little heart there. Is what it is. So this is like a 13-year-old girl that, no. Um, but this cover page here had Elizabeth sitting on the throne of, in, in the Bible, and you go, eh, maybe just a little bit, 
not the right focus to have. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so that's where they started with this. So, the authorized version of the Bible is what they referred to it as, because it was authorized by King James itself, which is why in common parlance it became known as the King James Version. Officially, it's the authorized version, but King James Version was finally finished and published in 1611. Now, like the Bishop's Bible before it, we've got to be careful. The King James was designed to be more eloquent than entirely accurate. It's not bad, but it's trying to be eloquent. It's going out of its way to be poetical in terms of how things are being phrased. So unlike Tyndale's Bible or the Geneva Bible, which tried to translate the Bible into common English so that everybody could read it and go, yeah, that's the, that's the way I would say it. The King James consciously tried to elevate the text everything into more highfalutin -y. Well, they would already have been using these and thous, although, yeah, they would already have been using these and thous with things, but um, King James would consciously, in terms of the syntax, uh, in terms of some of the vocabularies, using big words and things like that, it was, it was trying to, to, be, to make everything sound poetical, even if somebody is talking about, I walked into the room, into the room I strode. Well, yeah, technically that's true. Uh, so, um, if you ever felt like when you're reading the King James Bible, it, it reads kind of highbrow, high <laughs> very formal, you know, yeah, that's what they intended. And the people reading it in that day would have felt the same way. Joe Blow picking it up would have gone, well, that's pretty formal, compared to, say, what the Tyndale Bible or the Geneva Bible would have sounded like. Again, pros and cons to that. What are the pros to that? To making it more formal. What's the pro to making it more eloquent? You remember it better. Okay. You remember it better? It's not just common speech. There's, it's, it. there's an absolute beauty to it. You're giving majesty to it. It was harder for me to understand. But then again, I was not good at something. Well, now we're jumping back to cons again. Any other pros before we get into the cons? Oh, sorry. You feel smarter than when you get it. You do. <laughs> you feel smarter, okay? Because, yeah, it, it's... It, 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 well, it's just, because something... I'm going to turn yours into a pro. Because it's a little harder to understand, um, it forces you to stop and think about it. You have to actually reread it and think through it. Okay. I guess this would be a pro and a con, depending on how you want to look at it, but... Kind of what Donna was saying, if you're otherizing it to some degree, then for some people it makes it, I don't know, something more that sounds different to seek after that's closer to God, but at yep. the same time you're making kind of a false separation. Well, okay, then let's drift into the cons with that. You are ascribing majesty to God. You are speaking in majestic terms, right? And that is cool. That's very good. Is there a danger in saying we have to do a better job of ascribing majesty to God than the original writers did. The original writers wrote it as common works. We need to fix that. Now, you get to the Psalms, it's really cool to say, okay, no, let's bring out the, the poetry to this. <laughs> but what's the danger to saying, when Paul wrote Philippians, he wrote it very personally, very uh, commonly. So we need to fix that and make it highbrow and poetic, just like a song. It's not as point blank, this is what you're doing, and this is what you should be doing. Yeah, you lose the immediacy of it. You lose the intimacy of it. What else? And you lose the focus of God. I mean, you lose, because there are beautiful poetic parts of the Bible, if you go back to the Hebrew and the Greek, you don't, like you said, you don't, you don't need to do that. So then you lose some of the personalness and maybe some of the honesty in your face. Yeah. I mean, like, like in, in Jonah, where Jonah does this beautiful prayer, and then the very next verse after that is, and the fish puked. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the way it's written. I mean, it's, it's like eloquence and eloquence and eloquence. It's got like, fine, try again. This is, there's a reason why the Hebrew wrote it this way. This highbrow eloquence followed by, not dirtiness, but vulgarity, where God's like, I'm uh, not particularly impressed by you. <coughs> you lose that. Um, there's, there's a lot of bad, dirty stuff in the 
Not dirty. Well, naughty, but dirty as in grungy. Well, like Tamar and well. different stuff. I'm just saying that how do you make that eloquent? There, you know, you can't. Yeah. You have to make it where it's, they're honest. Like you said, the Hebrew writers, all of them were honest about the whole thing. I don't see KJV as being dishonest and sanitizing, though. No. I mean, you can see it as wrapping it in a neater package. I mean, maybe that sounds like splitting hairs, but I mean, it's no. not like you lose the grittiness in some points, just maybe in how it was written. Well, I mean, it, uh, they, <laughs> they consciously <laughs> blunted some of the criticism of kings and criticisms of <coughs> spiritual leaders and things like that with some of the translation. Not, not horribly. They didn't change the story. They just were like, can you, can you, can you translate that in a, with a slightly better word than boneheaded stupid? Yeah, but the Greek, the, the Greek says boneheaded stupid. How about Misguided. The king was misguided. It's just boneheaded, stupid. You're like, How about misguided? Yeah, fine, fine. Misguided. That sort of thing, yeah. It, it's, it's not sanitized as much as made a little bit more politically correct, with the thing, before, in 1611, politically correct. Um, my biggest thing, though, is anytime that you say, we're going to ascribe majesty to God and do it better than God does. That bothers me. You know, anytime that you, anytime that people say, "Well, um, I, I took a, I took a flower and I painted it beautifully, therefore my beautiful painting of the flower is better than the flower." You know, I, I'm not sure you improved upon the flower. Or anytime that you say, "Well, I know the Bible writers wrote it this way," but I think they didn't really understand that to make God majestic, we have to wrap it in human majestic terms. So let's tweak the Bible's writers to do this a better job than they did. Again, I'm not dissing the King James. It's not a horrible translation. In fact, for its day, it was a really good translation because they did go back to the Greek and Hebrew and things. But it just concerns me anytime that you go, I think we can improve on the Bible. It bothers me. For the same reason, although <coughs> not anywhere near as obnoxiously, for the same reason that I have problems with like the message, where he comes along and says, oh, I can say this better than they did. It's like, oh, you invariably really can't. Uh, I think reading multiple, uh, same with the Amplified, at least I know it's a book, it helps uh, more fully uh, add some depth to it. Absolutely. When, when I do my personal devotions, I almost invariably have the NIV and the NAS open at the same time. The NIV being a really good thought-for-thought -thought translation of it, and the NAS being a really good literal translation of it. Having said that, I grew up reading King James, so when I try to memorize scripture or remember bring up scripture I'm constantly quoting in the King James or some unholy mishmash of King James and then I <laughs> yeah anyway it was a good translation of, yeah but isn't that that's the cool thing I remember when I was reading about about <coughs> Jewish scholars of you know of the, of the Old Testament that they don't have the translation wars we do right. because the rabbis will just translate it even on the fly because yep. they know which, again, makes me, I don't know, things, when you said that unholy mishmash, I mean, just the closer you are to the original language, I mean, that's a really good argument for continuing to move closer to the original language and not, yeah. Oh. Okay, maybe I should say holy mishmash then. <laughs> uh, well, and we were just talking about, again, on Friday night, we were just talking about how um, most, uh, most imams within Islam would say, if you ask them, what's a good translation of the Quran, they'd say, there is no good translation of the Quran. If you want to read the Quran, read it, in, uh, read it in Arabic. That's what you're supposed to read. So, I mean, it'd be great if we could read it in the, in the Hebrew and, and the Greek. Not everybody's going to take Hebrew and Greek, but the, the closer you can get to the original, is better. The other thing, our language usage changed. So what was good 20 years ago, or even the words now, oh, yeah. generated the, the difference. Well, I still remember uh, back in, in college, sitting in on a sermon, and, and, the, and, the, and the preacher preached from the King James. And he was talking about, I will have no bull in my house. And he's like, so we all need to be honest. None of this playing games with... And I'm sitting there going, oh, you're using bull colloquially? Uh, don't speak no bull. You need to speak honestly. <laughs> I'm like, you don't understand. Oh, no, no. Sad, sad. Anyway, even though 
it's consciously trying to, to, to emphasize Anglican theology, even though it's trying to improve on the Bible's speech. It's a good translation. It's a solid translation. It's better than most of the ones that was out there at the time. And they, and the 40, and they had 47 different guys working on it. They were authorized to have 54, I think. But then 47 actually working on it. That's good. It's good to have a nice committee of people. And so King James has been in constant use and in constant print for 400 years. Like I said, this is, this is one that I grew up with, but I have to include the caveat, sort of. Because I'm pretty sure that the King James you're familiar with is not the one from 1611. The one that you grew up with, that I grew up with, that's not that one. Um, it, there are a bunch of different revisions, but the one that you're probably familiar with was a big revision in 1769, done by Clarendon Press, by one guy. Um, who came along and fixed a bunch of stuff. Most of them, it's just modernizing spelling. It's just coming along, because everything was spelled still in, in an older version of spelling back then. But there are several hundred little tweaks where it added words, dropped words, did things to make things more clear, less cumbersome, because in the 150 years since it had been written, things had, well, even language had changed. But also to make it back to the original languages. He's like, let's go back to the Greek and Hebrew and make it a little bit closer. Yeah? way people in England use words today that we don't, the bonnet on the car, oh, yeah. the, the hood, the things like that. So even within the English language, it has different meanings. Yeah, lift, flat, and there's, there's that whole, uh, what, biscuit, crumpet, chip, <laughs> thing. Oh, it's like, <laughs> this, is, this isn't a biscuit, no, it's a biscuit, it's not a biscuit. It's a cookie. It's a cookie. <laughs> No, it's chewy. Yeah, that's right. That's a crumpet. No. Anyway, um, but you, you, so you can sit there and say uh, you can sit there. Uh, screwed up there. Okay, so you can sit there and say that technically the text you grew up with is more accurate than the original 1611, which is which is true. But then you have to say that you've only got a 250 year old Bible instead of the 400 year old. Bible. People, it's a very accurate 400 year old Bible. I'm like, no, it's an accurate 250 year old Bible, which is still. Pretty yeah. So did he make the king stuff more accurate when he tweaked it? He, he tweaked it a little bit. Went back and was like, you know, come on, Lord. How about foolish? If not boneheadedly stupid. <laughs> I don't know about this guy you know. I'm thinking it was kind of foolish. But King James had been dead for 150 years, so it's okay. You can do it. Anyway. They weren't burying people at the stake, man. Not so much. Not so much. Uh, anyway. Okay, 1614, the Rosicrucians, the first Rosicrucian manifesto has been published. Anybody know, anybody ever hear of the Rosicrucians? Kind of mystic, just a smidgy bit. There's a book called The Fame of the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross. There's an anonymous text the next year, Confession of the Society and Brotherhood of the Rose Cross. The next year, the chemical, chemical uh, wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz in 1616 get published. In fact, that's when it was revealed that all three of these books were actually written 150 years earlier by a guy named Christian Rosenkreutz, who was this guy right here, working diligently to write stuff. <coughs> and it was expounding on the mysteries of the, of the Order of the Rose Cross that Pope Clement V had created in 1313. And so for 150 years, these have been hidden, but now they're being brought to life, because that happens for a lot, right? Things just sit around in the trunk for 150 years. <laughs> So, Christian Rosenkreutz, whose name, coincidentally, is Christian Rosecross. So, how fortuitous is that? That Clement created the Order of the Rose Cross, and its best proponent is a guy named Rose Cross. Because that happens. Yeah. Uh, that's a thing. So, he was born in, in 1378, and he was a Templar knight in his youth. But then he, he dedicated himself to wandering the world, uh, studying Sufism, studying all sorts of different things. And he wrote his chemical wedding, uh, and it's spelled that way because it's talking about alchemy, alchemical sorts of things, and, uh, as, a, as this allegory in, in 1459 to talk about the, the hidden mysteries of the nine lords and the four paths. And if you can just wrap your head around these things, you'll have a good life. Uh, if you're doing the math, he was 81 when he wrote the book, and he lived for at least another 40 years after that. Because Yeah, well, because he studied these... Uh, what? He studied like the Kabbalah and all these these mystical, magical things to to uh, to create elixirs to uh, to prolong his life. In fact, there's a good chance he's actually immortal. Um, 
That's the same ones. Okay. So that's the same guys. Uh, they claim that he created modern science under the name of Sir Francis Bacon because he's he's Joe scientist and he lived long enough. Well, I mean, good elixirs, okay? Good. They're not photographs. For a crying out, well, they both have two eyes, noses, beards. Um, they all look the same in those ears. They do. They do. Later, he went by the name of the Count of Saint Germain in the seventh in the eighteenth century, the seventeen hundreds. Uh, Saint Germain said so. Um, and today, he and the other ascended masters, such as Jesus Christ, rule the earth from heaven. Instead of an inner room, right? And instead of an inner room, or or possibly he performs under the stage name of David Blaine, because David Blaine has also claimed to be. Count St. Germain and Kristen Rosenkreutz. Um, anyway, so this is cool. And they created this mystical society, um, the Rosicrucians, or the Order of the Rose Cross, um, to teach <laughs> these mysteries to all of you. So he's one of the nine Not necessarily. He doesn't declare himself as that. Mm -hmm. The same guys, same guys. 1459 is kind of a big deal, because this is also the same year that the Freemasons of Strasbourg signed their constitution and included as part of that secret rites of the Rosicrucians, because the Rosicrucians had these mystery religions, secret rituals and things, and, and then the Freemasons were including some of those as well. Okay, so this is all punk. Yeah. No, this is all, this is totally rubbish. Everything oh, I just said is garbage. Oh, I thought, okay. This is total garbage. Oh, yeah, so the Rosicrucians still exist. But this is all crud. There's no mention of Rosenkreutz anywhere prior to 1616. There is no Christian Rosenkreutz. What, what are the chances that the leader of the, the Order of the Rose Cross happened to be named Rose Cross? Um, the Templars had been excommunicated and burned in 1314. By Clement! So what are the odds that somebody born 60 years later would be a Templar? Or that Clement would say, well, let's get rid of these secret societies and then make one of our own. No. Um, the Freemasons started in 1717 in a pub in London called the Goose and the Gridiron. It was only later that they retconned themselves. That's a, that's a comic book term, by the way. Retroactive continuity. So you sit there and you go, uh, Superman rocketed to Earth as a baby, and now in 1939, he's an adult. Okay, it's 1960. Superman rocketed to Earth in 1939, and now he's an adult. It's not quite the same thing. Now it's, now it's the year 2000. Superman rocketed to Earth as a baby, and now he's an adult. He's, it's always been that Superman rocketed to Earth about 30 years ago. You just retroactively do continuity to say, yeah, it's always been that way. I don't think it is. Shut up. It's always been that way. He used to leap tall buildings in a single bound, remember? Because he couldn't fly. Oh. <laughs> no, he's always been able to fly. I don't think he has. I think he's used to jump. No, he's always been able to. Retroactive continuity. Long jump. Long jump. <laughs> High jump. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so, so the, uh, the Freemasons do this retcon, and they say, oh, we've been around since the building of the Temple of Solomon. You know, 1717, uh, 1459, Strasbourg signed the Constitution. Pretty sure they didn't, because this didn't exist until 1717, and that was in England. I don't know when it got to, to Germany. So all absolute malarkey, everything that they're saying. Actually, they started about 16... I mean, their stuff really was published in 1614, 15 yeah. and 16. So that's when it kicked in. Um, <coughs> and then the Freemasons about a, about 100 years later. But, even though this is all totally ridiculous, it really does become increasingly important over the next 300 years. Because you get all these secret societies that people are wanting to be part of. All the really important men in a, in a, in a, a community are part of this secret you know, friendship fraternity thing. Start to shake hands and then you... You rub elbows and then do some kind of handshake and they go, ooh, so you're of the mystical order of the monkey as well. Hey! That makes you important. 
And you go, right, but it, these fraternities themselves start creating their own sense of prestige. So, um, the Catholics say, well, we need one of these. In 1882, they established the Knights of Columbus with secret rights and all sorts of different things like that. Um, Midwesterners go, well, we want it on our own. We establish, like, the Moose Lodge. And all, all those things are, you know, the Grand Order of the Poobah. Right. It's all coming out of this. Um, college students in the, in the 1770s in America say, we want our own fraternities, our own secret things. They have our own secret initiations and rites, and we're going to use Greek letters and esoteric symbols and things. You go, yeah. All of this comes from this, which is trying to make a nod back to the ancient mystery religions, like the Mithras cults and all that kind of stuff. But it's all totally modern. It's this new modern thing of a bunch of guys in trousers and waistcoats and, and things going, I'm going to spank you with a paddle, and then we're going to eat duck. And you know, it's, But it's going to be, it's got to be duck cooked in orange sauce, or else it doesn't matter. But this is also where, this is also where the, the Freemasons come from. Just this whole idea of, we're creating this new funky um, mystery cult so that we feel special. Oh yeah. If you talk to a, if you talk to a, a Freemason, they will talk to you about Hiram Abiff, the the um, uh, the guy that helped design the Temple of Solomon and build it, and and that there's this. Three guys back then, and this happened this way, and this. Oh, yeah, they got a very long, complicated history of stuff that never happened. So did the Mormons, for that matter. So, I mean, it's any cult is going to retroactively figure out their own backward pointing things. Most of the presidents in the last century have been Freemasons, so like the 33rd degree. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> you think so? Um, you go to a Freemason's funeral, uh, and they have the Masonic funerals, um, and they will they will express to you that the reason that this man is going to go to heaven is because he was a good Freemason and he followed the rules of the Masonic lodge and all that kind of stuff. I had no idea what I was. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of people that are going. Oh, it's goofy, goofy. It's it's kooky, but you know we we wear fezes and we have a lot of fun. You know? Or we go and help people. We build shrine or hospitals and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's good stuff comes from it. But uh, you know, a lot of them are like, no, this is an ancient, respected society. That's why I use the word cult. <laughs> anyway, sixteen eighteen, thirty years war begins. Um, now, over the last century, <laughs> Europe's map has changed a lot. So much so that I actually got to add a little bit at the top so you can see more stuff that's going on up north. Um, but in general, you've got a lot of kingdoms that have grown to engulf a lot of the other smaller kingdoms. You had had a, a bunch of little city-states and things, and so like Spain now controls Portugal. You notice there's no difference of Portugal here, which means they also get North Africa. Spain also controls the Holy Roman Empire in Europe in, in Germany. What? Nice for them. Nice for them, yeah. So now they've got Africa and the New World. They've got everything. Spain gets to control the whole world. Any place that you go that doesn't already have a church gets to be Spain. Um, they also have large portions of the Netherlands. They also have southern Italy. There's just a lot of Spain going on in this map. Spain is, is the going power right now. So nobody likes Spain. <laughs> Poland, you notice, is huge. Poland is in control of Lithuania. Technically, Russia is a vassal state of Poland now, which from a modern context is just kind of funny. Not at the moment. <laughs> Not right now. It's kind of small, yeah. Right now, for the last hundred years, Poland has been kind of the done-to of Eastern Europe. So well, at this point, Poland is huge. Uh, Denmark has taken over Norway and parts of the Swedish coastline. All the countries that we look at now and go, hey, that's a major power? It's a major power, right? Denmark, Spain, Poland, controlling the world. Really? It wasn't all that long ago. It wasn't all that long ago, not really. 
We also have city-states like uh, Venice, Genoa, that have engulfed other smaller cities around them. And so they're actually becoming legit countries of their own, in their own right. Very wealthy. <laughs> lots of lots of shipping. Anyway. Now, the boundaries themselves might look strange. You might look at Poland and go, well, it's supposed to be little now, but it's big. But the concept of the European map is more what we're normally used to now. The idea of nations as opposed to a bunch of little city-states. We, we chuckle about little city-states now. We go, <laughs> Luxembourg. <laughs> it's kind of like a country. You but that's the way it was in 1500s. Most of Europe is this little city-states. Little, you know, uh, the Grand Duchy of, what was, it, what was it in the mouth of Roar? Fenwick. Grand Fenwick. That's what it was. Yeah, most of Europe is like that. A mile square. Anyway. Um, is the green bezel? Yes. Green. Specific. This is Muslim also. But the green here is specifically the Ottoman Empire. But, but we try in these maps, green is always Muslim. Um, it's big green. It's big green. Lots of green. Anybody who's ever played Risk or Diplomacy knows you can go picnicking on all the little city-states, but eventually you've actually got to take a nip at the big boys. You, know, you just run on a map. If you want to keep growing, sometimes you have to take on France and Germany and stuff like that. So, there's one big boy on this map that's actually still just made up of individual city-states. Do you, do you know which one that is? Um, well, actually, Italy's got like, like uh, Genoa and Venice and the Papal States and Naples, it is city-states, but they're getting bigger. The Holy Roman Empire is technically 224 city-states. It's this patchwork quilt of Protestant and Catholics. Uh, okay, remember, what's the name of the league? You've heard this multiple times? The Schmalkaldic League. I'm teaching you this word whether you like it or not. The Schmalkaldic League. Way to go, Sarah. Extra Mexican coke for you this reason. <laughs> uh, Moritz of Saxony helped win independence uh, with the Schmalkaldic League, and in 1555, uh, Emperor Carlos had to sign a declaration in the Peace of Augsburg that gave all 224 of the states religious tolerance. They can do whatever they want to do in terms of religion. Kind of a big deal. So for about 60 years, they've more or less had peace. I mean, there's hiccups along the ways. But basically, you have all these German city-states that are getting along-ish. Last 60 years, and so now the big kingdoms go, so you're the one that's going to be easiest to overthrow. If I have to go picnicking on a big boy, this is going to be the one that's actually going to be the easiest to kick. So, Spain said, we want total control of this region. I know Carlos said everybody gets to decide their own thing, but quite frankly, you're all under Habsburg rule anyway. We want to control it. France said, I don't like the idea of being stuck between nothing but brown Spanish states. I'm getting squeezed out here. This is not cool. There's even a little Spanish bit right there in the middle of France. I don't want it. Denmark says, we, we can't seem to get much past the coastline on Sweden. I got nowhere to go but south. Again, ever play diplomacy, ever play risk, you go, what am I going to do? Am I going to go take Scotland? No, I, I'm going to go down into, into the Baltic states. So Germany becomes this powder keg, and it's like somebody somewhere is going to light a match, and it's Spain. It's because of course it's Spain. Um, at the end of the 16th century, Spain forcibly ousts uh, Protestant leaders in the Cologne region of, of Germany, and installs Catholic region, the Catholic ones in there. We're, we're, we're going to take the reins, and we're going to make this Spanish Catholic by golly. So in the early 17th century. Protestants say, fine, we're going to kick the Catholics out of office, and you don't get to have public festivals. You can do whatever you want to in your church buildings, but you don't actually get to be in the streets and talk about Catholicism and stuff. It just starts getting a little intense in Germany. And you don't want to get intense in Germany. <laughs> not, not theoretically the most laid-back people when it comes to like warfare. Um, I'm German, I can say it. No, I'm German. I'm like two-thirds German. Um, all this tension... It's ameliorated by the Emperor Matthias, who's trying to be conciliatory. He's trying to be a moderate. He's like, Carlos was a bit intense, but I'm not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make, can't we all just get along? I'm going to make some different concessions to the different religions. Let's just keep, the, keep the, 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 the lid on the pot. Everything will be okay. Unfortunately, he's not going to live forever, 
And its heir is a rabidly Catholic, Ferdinand of Styria. By the way, you'll notice what's be the beginning of something that becomes known as the Habsburg jaw. These thick lips and this jaw that comes jutting out a, a bit. It gets worse. Oh, it gets much worse. But too many sisters and brothers and co first cousins marrying over too long a period of time, it gets, it gets ugly. Anyway, so the Protestants in Bohemia don't like the idea of Ferdinand taking <laughs> office. They're like, this is just going to end badly for us. Ferdinand is, is not a nice guy. He's extremely Catholic. We're not happy about this. So Ferdinand brings his representatives to Trochene Castle in Prague, and they throw the representatives out the window into the streets. The defenestration of Prague. If you've ever heard the phrase, the defenestration of Prague, defenestration is a fancy word for throwing something out the window. Because, like, the, the, the uh, in German, this is uh, this fenster. And, and last, Latin, is, is it fenster? Fenster. Fenster, yeah. So, defenestration means throwing out the window. So. Very popular Okay. <laughs> Multiple people being thrown out the windows in, in her house in college. Um, how very Pragian of you. Um, so, Ferdinand, being Ferdinand, did not respond well to this. He's like, oh, I'm sending troops in, we're quelling this. Which actually made the Bohemians just explode into full fledged rebellion. It's like, not just riots, not just uh, protests. Nope, we're an absolute. Open rebellion against the against the imperial crown. You wouldn't, would you? No. no. The revolt spreads to Western Germany. When other people hear about this and start saying, "Hey, well, they can do it. We can do it. We don't like this guy either." Now, this guy sounds kind of dangerous. All the Western Protestant states start fighting. Too much for Ferdinand to handle on his own. So who would you turn to to look for help? If you're sitting there, the Holy Roman Emperor, you don't have a lot of troops on your own. Who would you look to to help you keep order? Spain! So he goes to his nephew, Philip IV of Spain. Note the Habsburg jaw. <laughs> it gets worse. Uh, it's just bigger jaw, thicker lips, uh, more problems, droopy eyes. Yep. Which made the Protestants say, well, then we need help from the Protestant Union, the successor to the Schmalkaldic League. We're going to join the, the official union. We're going, to, we're going to fight against everybody. Come together to fight against the Catholics. It keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the Protestants in Austria say, well, we're going to rebel too. Because Austria is held by the, the Habsburg Catholics. Yeah? This is starting to sound like the 17th century equivalent Funny how that goes. When, when you've got all these cousins that are intermarried and everybody has entangling alliances, yes. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. This is exactly how World War II technically started, too, but especially World War I. Um, this isn't the Seven Year War. This is the Thirty Years War. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. Um, and and this, at this point, everything gets really bizarre. Like, it hasn't been bizarre yet. It gets bizarre for... Yeah. Is one of the reasons why they all hate each other so much is just because of their point of view of doctrine? It's relatively little to do with their point of view of doctrine. Okay. It's, uh, yes, on a high level, sure. I mean, Protestant it's, versus Catholic, mainly that's doctrine. Sort of. Uh, think more of Northern Ireland. Is that really Protestant versus Catholic? You know, technically, yes, but it's more like, I get to be Protestant. I get to be Catholic. You can't tell me to be Protestant. You can't tell me to be Catholic. My great-granddad died to, for me to be Protestant, and here you're being all Catholic. I'm going to firebomb your car. Well, you Protestants are all crazy firebombing cars. I'm going to go explode a school. It is, it's not technically about doctrine anymore. In fact, we're going to see that here in a second. <coughs> Transylvania invades Hungary within Austria because it says, I'm going to help the war effort. I'm going to support the the Protestants, even though most of them in Transylvania are, are like pseudo-Catholic and stuff, Order of the Dragon, that sort of thing. Yep, yep. But they basically just want Hungary, and this is, they see that Austria is in civil war. Let's go take Hungary. Hungary for Hungary. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just had to get it out, didn't you? Okay. Which means Catholic Poland comes to defend Hungary against 
uh, Transylvania or Wallachia at this time, which brought the Ottoman Empire into it because Wallachia is technically a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire. It's kind of greenish over here. Which starts the Polish-Ottoman War at the same time that you have the Thirty Years' War going. You want surreal? You've got Muslims dying to defend Protestants. Muslims taking the field, he sent something like 60,000 troops to go defend Protestant strongholds from Catholic forces. Just freaky weird stuff like this. Um, so you've got this world war centered around Germany. Luckily, that's the last time that happens, right? But yeah, uh, this is why it lasts so long. It just, it's, everybody is fighting everybody over this. England is sending in troops. The Dutch are sending in troops. The Spanish are sending in troops. The French are sending in troops. Everybody's fighting over German territories. By the end of the Thirty Years' War, Germany is a wasteland. It's just this charred, just horribly chewed up ground. Um, in fact, there's a movie called The, La the Last Valley. Uh, that was based on a James Clavell novel. And the whole point is that um, a clump of people stumble on the last valley in Germany, not either decimated by plague or the war. Like, wait, everything around this is hellish, but this place is actually kind of nice. What do you do with it? Anyway, if you want to understand the Thirty Years' War, I can give you all sorts of different battles. And we can do that. And I love battles, so I can discuss that. But I love the looking at the, at, the, at, the, at the personal moments. For instance, Cyrano de Bergerac of Big Nose fame was a real guy. And he actually apparently fought alongside Charles de Bax, the Comte d'Artagnan from Three Musketeers fame. Who was a real guy? They fought at the Siege of Arras in, in, in 1640 together. So real guys doing real stuff. Kind of kind of cool. But if you really want to understand the Thirty Years' War, I want to talk about this radical Swiss Protestant pastor named Georg Jenach. This guy exemplifies the Thirty Years' War to me. 1618, Jenach oversaw the slow torture of a, 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 an Italian Catholic priest named Niccolo Rusca who uh, was wrongly accused of murdering Protestant pastors. And so, in Yenach's Grey League, this group of people that he had, um, the Graubunden. Um, but he wasn't guilty, but Yenach needed a whipping boy. He needed somebody to kind of uh, take the, the blame for it, so he tortured and, and killed this guy. 1621, Yenach joined the Protestant rebels in their attacks against the Spanish-backed Catholics in the Valtellina region of... Uh, Northern Italy, southern, uh, <coughs> southern uh, Switzerland. So do you call it the Valtellina or the Valtelline? Depends on whether you're looking at it from the Swiss side or the, or the Italian side. So he led the siege of, of, of Rietberg Castle, the home of a Catholic rival named Pompeius from Planta. And they had been bumping heads for a while. And uh, in a brutal fight, Yenach uh, impaled from Planta to the floor with an axe in front of Pomplanta's wife and small son. And then left the axe there, left him pinned to the floor, saying, I want every Catholic to see what happens to them if they try to be Catholic in this region. This is going to be a Protestant region now. And that's the basic attitude of the Thirty Years War. Very personal, very brutal, very nasty, nasty place. Now, 1631. Realized that as many axes as you leave stuck in, as many different people, you're not gonna you're not gonna push them out. They're entrenched there. It's they're, they're speaking Italian. They're going to be Catholic. It's it's the way that they're, that they're thinking. So what do you do? You can't dislodge them. Your Swiss backing isn't enough. You talk to the French. So you talk to the French Catholic Cardinal Richelieu, also from the Three Musketeers fame, right? Played here by Charles Heston. Actually, does a really good job. Anyway, but the French didn't like the Spanish anymore than the Swiss did. The French are like, they may be Catholic, but I'm surrounded by Spanish. I kind of like the idea of taking some some of that brown off the board. Yes, uh, in, di in diplomacy terms, I will support you into the Valentina, uh, the Voltolina. I'm sorry, and so we will help you with this. Cardinal Richelieu backs the radical Swiss Protestants, the Grey League, against the Spanish Catholics in Italy. And that's the basic attitude of the Thirty Years' War, too. So is it really Catholics versus Protestants? Yeah, well, no. Sort of. Ostensibly, no. No. You know, I just realized after a while, though, he's like, wait a minute, these French are not... 
they're willing to give me money and give me troops to go dislodge the Spanish, but they're not actually interested in the Swiss taking over. In fact, they're taking, they're making efforts to make sure that the Swiss don't get it at the end, that they take it over when I'm all said and done. I'm going to do all of this, and it's going to end up French territory under Richelieu, because he's a better schemer than just about anybody. Again, watch the movies. Richelieu is really good. Uh, of this whole schemey bits. Yeah, he's about the best of the schemey bits. So what do I do? He's going to do a completely different tactic to get the Valtamina by supporting a completely different ally. If you are Yanach, who do you go to next? You've been fighting against the Spanish, and you got support from the Swiss. That's not going to be enough, so you get support from the French against the Spanish. Who else might you tag? Pardon me? Oh, the Poles would be smart. They're way over there, though, and they're fighting the Ottomans. But that would be the smart people. What? The English, they've got troops over there. <laughs> the Spanish! What? What? Yeah, the Spanish, and they're always the Austrians. You go to the Spanish and you say, these French want you out. I've just been working for the French. How about you and me work together on this? So he converts to Catholicism in 1635. No. Yeah. The same guy that axed the guy to the floor because he was Catholic converts to Catholicism. Well, yeah, to cement the alliance. Doesn't that make sense? Wow. What for that? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm and he plots with them against France to assure the Grey League is going to be in control of the Valtellina. And he gets to be the region's governor as a result. So he's this powerful governor. 1639, powerful governor. Opens up his castle for carnival. You know what carnival is? It's uh, it's it's the, the from the Latin carnivale, meaning a farewell to the, to the meat, or felt, or even literally farewell to flesh, to fleshliness. And so carnival comes right before Lenten fast. You, hold on to that in a second. It's like there's a lot of flesh going on there. <laughs> well, that's what you do. Before you actually... You're saying goodbye really fondly. Well, that's what it is. You have to have something to, to say farewell too. So if you're a good Catholic, before you start fasting and saying, I'm going to be all holy, you have the most unholy party you can possibly come up with. You go have outlandish costumes. You go eat like a madman. You go have sex in the streets and stuff. You, you party, party, party. Because for the next 40 days, you're going to show Jesus how much you love him. So if, you, if you're like, I'm going to fast chocolate for the next 40 days, you go, then eat five pounds of chocolate right beforehand. And that'll show God how much you miss chocolate. You've got to have something to miss, so party. Mardi Gras is French for Fat Tuesday. In other words, the Tuesday where you feast and eat all the fatty foods and things. Because the next day on Ash Wednesday, you have to actually start fasting. So you party hardy on Fat Tuesday, or nowadays the week leading up to and including Fat Tuesday. And then Ash Wednesday, you go, you'd be all holy. Wow. Okay, you gotta remember, you gotta remember Catholicism still in this particular era. Is it all theology? You go, no, it's pretty whack. It's, just, it's not making a lot of sense here. And I would say Mardi Gras nowadays has absolutely nothing to do with theology. But it is still carnival. It's still this basic mindset of you party huge, and then the next day, you show Jesus how, how devout you are. But you have to have something to, to say goodbye to, so you are as fleshly as possible. Anyway, so he opens up his castle carnival, because that's what rulers did. You know, you, you open up your doors, you say, come and have a big party in my house. All the revelers come in. What? I said he's going to get killed. Oh, no, no, no. They're having a party. All these people in costume come in. This is great. Yeah! They're all coming in, and that's when a guy in a bear costume attacks and kills him with an axe. Ah. Hmm. How many years later was this? This is 18 Wait, years is later. This is the same axe that you not used to kill Pompeius 18 years before. Plays it by his own guitar completely. I love the irony of this story. This is awesome. We don't know who it was in the bear costume because he was in a bear costume, right? It's like, when you think about it, you walk in, axe, oh, let me in with my axe. It's part of my bear costume because all bears walk in with axes. That axe looks vaguely familiar. I used to have an axe like that. Nope, just a prop. Anyway, um, it's okay. 
it's only my funny bone. Um, <laughs> we, we so we don't know who's the better costume. As ridiculous as that costume is, it's like the best assassin costume ever. Because you go, how tall was he? Nine foot? Uh, was he slender or was he chunky? It was kind of roly-poly, actually. What does his face look like? Like a bear. You don't know who it is. He's in a bear costume. But all the evidence points to Rudolph von Planta, the young son who had just come of age. I he's become... they made a movie about this. They should! I told you he was going to die. You were absolutely right. You were so right. <laughs> this guy so deserves to die. Bear! Costume. This is like your classic hero origin story. <laughs> the guy killed my father. Exactly. 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 I will become a bat. Criminals are a cowardly superstitious lot. I will dress like a bear. <laughs> All that conscious use of the war to justify personal gains, uh, war profiteering, to to justify old vendettas and everything. That's the basic attitude of the Thirty Years' War, too. So that's why I'm saying this story just really exemplifies the Thirty Years' War. Thing. But here's the thing. If you ever see a guy in a bear costume with an axe, run! Run, run away! Run away from the bear! Don't trust the bear! Yes. Da-da-da. Winnie the Pooh's gone bad. No! This is from a video game. Oh, some night at Freddy's. Sorry, no, but that's a... 1620, the Pilgrim found a colony at Plymouth. That's where we'll pick up next week. Not bad. <laughs> they left from Plymouth, Plymouth and arrived at Plymouth because it was very fortuitous. Um, but I wanted you to get a sense, I mean, I had to end with dying with a costume because it's just fun. But I wanted you to get a sense of the nature of the Thirty Years' War. It's just the ultimate example of not even remotely fun. In the name of religion, People are slaughtering one another, destroying an entire nation of people. It really is just, it looked like, pardon me, by the end of the Thirty Years' War, uh, something like, gosh, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember how many millions of people died. Millions? Oh, millions. Wow. Something like, uh, I'm going to say upwards of like 11 million people died, if I remember correctly. Um, it's been a while since I've looked that up, so I'm not sure. But it, it, it's one of the one of the most devastating wars in European history. Um, up until World War One, it was winning. <laughs> this is just horrible. And at the end, Germany looked like France did at the end of World War One, um, just just utterly burned out. But this is being done in the name of religion. Everything's being done in the name of religion, and yet it had nothing to do with religion. By the end, you have these mercenary bands made up of Protestants, Catholics, uh, atheists. They didn't care. They just, they're, just, you know, they're half Dutch, half English. They're just, just there for the money. Just there because you get to kill a lot of people and make a lot of money in the process. Um, this is a nasty time in European history. Good stuff going. Yeah, a lot of them got killed. You know, and, and or or left. A, a lot of a lot of people leaving Germany. So we're going to see just coming you know, like you saw this exodus from England to to say Holland. And, and, and where they're creating a, a Christianity there, um, you're seeing a lot of people leaving Germany at this time and going and settling, Catholics going and settling in France or Protestants going to England to get away from all the craziness in Germany. So when, when people look at things like, oh, ISIS, this is a new concept, you say, it really isn't. It really isn't. And you talk to any good Muslim and they will say, you know, I'm not even sure I would say this is a religious conflict. I mean, some, sure, I mean, this, you're not being Islamic enough. There's just an awful lot of, well, we control this territory now. I'm a caliph. I'm in charge of everything here. Ha, 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 ha. So, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that somehow throughout all of this, you still allowed your church to grow. You still allowed your truth to be spoken. You still allowed good translations of your, of your word to be, to be created. Thank you that you're still sovereign, even today, no matter what, what the news tells us. It's not as bad as it has been in other times in history. And we just need to, I pray, Lord, that you help us to, to stand firm, to um, stand for truth, not just doctrinal truth about Christology, but doctrinal truth about how we should love one another.
another, how we should stand for truth and speak truth and love. We pray, Lord, be glorified by how we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.